You didn't go in there for any reason. You definitely didn't go in there to get food. Before closing it out with Conan in 2009, before It Might Get Loud with Jimmy Page and The Edge in 2008, before The Simpsons in 2006, before SNL in 2002, before the six Grammys and the 11 nominations, before the platinum records, the gold records, the vinyl records, before Pavement, before the blowout, before the gold dollar, and before that idyllic Detroit scene we talked about last episode had even crystallized, there was a frenetic boy learning how to play music in his attic and a quiet, artistic girl entirely unconcerned with playing music at all. I'm Sean Cannon from Third Man Records and Nevermind Media. This is Striped, the story of the White Stripes. And you know, while a young Jack White put in plenty of hours practicing and listening to classic rock records his brothers fed him, things didn't really start coming together until he became an apprentice to a master upholsterer named Brian Muldoon. Brian's family is another big Catholic family and grew up next door to Jack's family. So when, but Brian's a lot older. Um, he's maybe 20 years older than Jack. And he had started his own upholstery shop. And I think one of his brothers, one of Jack's brothers had said, hey, Brian needs some help at the upholstery shop. So Jack started when he was, I think, a teenager in high school, um, had started helping Brian out after school. And you're thinking, oh, that's fine and all, but uh, what's upholstery have to do with the white stripes? Well, it just so happens that Brian Muldoon had, uh, as Blackwell says here. Great musical taste, you know, into 60s garage rock and 70s punk and always really up to date on that stuff. And so he exposed Jack to a lot of stuff that he, you know, his brothers weren't exposing him to. And it wasn't just listening to music. Brian played music too, which meant, uh, you know, they'd regularly jam after a long day's work. A day full of upholstery. And then afterwards it's like, all right, let's push everything aside and let's pull out the guitar amp and, and the drums and let's record. In talking to Blackwell about this era, it, it really seemed like this is what ultimately prepared Jack for things to come. In a sense, it was his real education instead of the handful of college classes he took after high school. Oh, absolutely. In regards to how to upholster a, <laughs> how to upholster a chair and how to construct a punk song. You know, absolutely. How to use feedback, things like that. This project ended up with a couple different names over the years, including the upholsterers and two-part resin, both of which making it pretty clear what was going on, you know, when, when the amps were tucked away. But interestingly enough, two-part resin would end up being a two-piece so there's already that thread going by 94, 95. And then not long after, you see something else familiar crop up. So Jack had started in, I believe it was 1996, he started his own upholstery shop. Um, and that was in a, a, a building that was filled with artists. And I can't remember the name of the building. We can fill it back in if we need to. Uh, wait a minute, let me check on that. Uh, it's the Pioneer Building right near the Russell Industrial Center in Detroit. And he was 21 years old, and he had apprenticed at, I believe, two different upholstery shops by that point. You know, got the equipment, got the sewing machines, and uh, all the accoutrements needed to be an upholsterer and just, you know, set out doing that. And he did that through August of 98. The shop, by the way, was called Third Man Upholstery. Yeah, a name you might recognize. And for Jack, it wasn't just about rehabbing some old couches. He was trying to be artful and creative in his approach to upholstery. Like, 
everything in the upholstery shop was yellow and black. You know, that's where the third man colors actually come from. They go back that far. Um, and he would, he kind of viewed it all as an art project. He'd write people's receipts in crayon and it would just be, you know, just be in black crayon. It would just say, you owe me $500 or whatever. Um, which is fine if it's me and you and we're cool friends hanging out at the coffee shop or whatever. But if you're just, you know, redoing someone's easy chair out in the suburbs, they, they kind of look at you like, what, what is this? It doesn't really make sense. So, I mean, you can see all these little bits and pieces floating around, a two-piece band, color combos, tight art direction, and even some of the songs for that matter. Uh, Lafayette Blues from the White Stripes' second single began life as a two-part resin song. So it's pretty easy to see at this point that a good idea never goes unused, or unreused for that matter. My, fi- my favorite thing that I got to see was Jack would, um, when you've torn down a piece of upholstery and you kind of just have the wooden framework um, of a couch or a chair or whatever, um, he would write poems on the framework. And he thought of it as, he's like, I, I wanted to establish this secret way of communication between upholsterers that you'd write a message and it might not be seen for 30 years. It might not be seen at all. I think there's a similar thing amongst watchmakers or watch repairmen. Um, That kind of art for the sake of maybe someone will see it, maybe someone won't. The last piece that he upholstered, I remember delivering it with him. The only... uh, Ben Blackwell, myself, the only employee ever of Third Man Upholstery. But after we delivered it, it was a Chase Lounge. We dropped it off and we were driving away. And I just remember Jackson. There's so much fucking poetry inside that. Amidst all these other formative experiences in Jack's life, he also joined cowpunk band Goober and the Peas by 1994 as what would be their uh, 15th or so drummer. This was kind of a big deal since at the time, they'd had a modicum of success on the road and it meant Jack got to tour with Dan Goober Miller and the crew uh, until he exited the band in 1995. And that band kind of fell apart Maybe ninety six. I don't. I don't know the full. I don't know the full details uh, on that. But that band fell apart, and then not long afterwards, Dan put together Two Star Tabernacle and and asked Jack to if he wanted to play guitar in it. As it happens, this was also around the time Two Part Resin ended up uh, kind of winding down because Brian had a career and a family, and like so many bands, different priorities meant a parting of the ways. But. Jack had way too much energy, way too many ideas for, for just one band. So this is where Meg White comes in. I remember, this is probably like 1996. I remember, um, maybe like May 96, I remember Jack saying to me, he's like, yeah, me and, me and Meg just started jamming together. And I, I don't know, I was like mm, 14 years old. Oh, that's interesting. That sounds cool. I, I don't think I was ever aware of a band being two people at that point. So to me, it was kind of like you and Meg and who else? And who else? 
Well, at that point, it was hard to say. You know, Meg had just decided to jam with Jack, and even though their creative visions took flight, it, it was still just for fun at home. And remember, uh, music wasn't a thing Meg wanted to pursue at all. If it wasn't with Jack, she was not playing music. That was, that was I think, at her reluctance of, I'm not a drummer, I don't think I know how to play drums, but his, his urging, like, let's do this. So they keep banging around in the attic until things start to develop into what would become the White Stripes. You know, the, the two-piece, the red, white, and black, the peppermints, uh, uh, dressing up like a couple of little kids who just picked up their instruments for the first time to play something primal. And then comes Bastille Day 1997, their first show ever at the Gold Dollar. Sunday nights at the Gold Dollar were open mic. Um, you just show up, you get whatever, 20 minutes on stage, and so... It's not too far from uh, Jack's house in southwest Detroit. So they rolled on over and did uh, three or four songs. Um, and it's all there. Uh, it is surprisingly from, from that performance. And then they played their first full performance was a month later, August uh, 14th, 1997. The idea is fully formed. The band, the approach, the sound, it's all there. It's quite remarkable. I mean, it's like if you see or listen to early footage or performances uh, by the Ramones, it's like, this is the Ramones. Like, they could not be anything else. While the entire concept and the sound might be there right off the bat, the songs are still all over the place. And, and I don't mean the songwriting is messy or incoherent. I mean, Jack is writing songs uh, for lots of other bands at this point, like The Henchman or Rocket 455, not to mention his main band at the time, Two Star Tabernacle. In fact, uh, one important White Stripes song in particular started life as a two-star track. In a rather hilarious fashion. <laughs> it was a great story. Two Star played a show at the Magic Stick in, it was New Year's Eve, uh, 97 going to 98. And it was Two Star Tabernacle, Detroit Cobras, and Demolition Doll Rods. Really, really, like, great bill. Also hanging around that night was Andre Williams, the R&B singer from the 50s and 60s, who uh, kind of had a bit of a renaissance in the late 90s. Two Star was planning on doing a version of 16 Tons, the old uh, Merle Travis song, I think. Yeah, you know the one. You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and... St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. And Andre's like, oh, let's, I'll sing with you. And I just recently, just recently found a live recording of it. I was like, oh my God, I remembered watching this. And it was so amazing. I remember loving it and uh, listened to the live recording. And it's maybe abominable. <laughs> it's so bad. Andre didn't know though. He didn't know the words other than bless my soul to 16 tons. He had 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. Um, but all he seemed to know was bless my soul. So he's just hollering bless my soul over the entirety of the song. Andre! 
by the way, those words Andre keeps singing over and over, bless my soul. Well, they're only in the song one time. A couple verses in. It's not like they're part of the chorus. So as for why Andre's singing them throughout the entire song, (laughs) your guess is as good as mine. Backstage after the gig, uh, after Two Star played, Andre's like, we you know, conversation starts to get happening and it's, it gets to the point of we should record together. And Andre said, we got to do something controversial. And his two suggestions for controversial topics were, um, I can't repay my student loans because quote, lots of kids is getting fucked out there. And the other song title he suggested was, what if I was gay? Would you love me anyway? Neither of those songs got written, but the little drop of controversial is what Jack picked up on. And so after Andre said that, he turned around and wrote The Big Three Killed My Baby. And he wrote that song for Andre. And they recorded it at that two-star recording session. But it didn't, it didn't really work. Um, we've subsequently released it on Third Man as a, as a vault fan club thing. And it had this great intro that, uh, that we kept on there. Andre had... He wanted to do like a mafioso. Uh, he kept on talking about the Italians. We got to do this for the Italians. So it had this this spoken word intro, which was they downsized the easy way to decrease the payday. But I'm not big enough to change your play. Because that was like prime El Nino time. And then the band goes in to doing Big Three Killed My Baby. We can drop that in. <laughs> oh, hell yes, we can. As you'll see, it's not like the White Stripes, you know, Jack and Meg start playing and the White Stripes begin from there. There's a lot of kind of earlier influences and things kind of going back to, oh, wow, this is a song that Jack wrote, you know, two years before the White Stripes ever started playing, or this is a song that actually started with this other band and it ended up on White Blood Cells or things like that. This is also around the time the band started forging meaningful relationships with people that would uh, end up being important in the development of the band and beyond. Like Johnny Walker from the Soledad Brothers, who we heard from in the last episode, and who ended up being the only person besides Jack and Meg that played on their first record. I met Jack and Toledo at Two Star Tabernacle. We were opening up for Two Star Tabernacle, and... um. We, you know, we were a two-piece, and he was like, oh, I just started a two-piece band, too. You know, and then he showed up at one of our Magic Stick shows and helped me carry my equipment back to the car. I'm like, who is this kid with this funny-ass haircut? But he was super nice, so. And he said, asked me if I wanted to come over and record at his house, so of course I did, because I was up for just about anything back then. 
Johnny and Jack really hit it off and ended up spending a lot of time together recording, like when Jack played Snow Shovel on one of the Soledad Brothers singles. But when they weren't recording, they were, you know, just trying to scrape by together. We were both broke as fuck. Um, we like, remember the one time we had to scrape change out of the couch in his living room so we could go buy mac and cheese. Like, super broke. Uh, the, the difference, though, was that Johnny was looking at med school while Jack was thoroughly committed to music. And in hindsight, Johnny Walker getting into med school was actually one of the best things that could have ever happened to the White Stripes. Sounds weird, but just trust me on this. I, I called Jack uh, when I got accepted into med school. Um, and, and I was like, hey, man, I got into med school. He's like, oh, that's cool. And he's like, was not, he was like, I'm like, what's the matter? He's like, oh, he's going to ask you to join the White Stripes. And I was like, That'll never go anywhere. <laughs> There's a story I would like to tell. Now think about that. If Johnny held off on med school, maybe even a semester, the White Stripes might have been a three-piece instead of that two-piece boy-girl duo. Not only would that have changed the essence of the band? But like Johnny says here, it, it could have derailed everything that was to come. That was part of the attraction, you know? The, the mass attraction. So I just don't see, if I was in the band, they would. I don't think they would have been as success, successful. So I'm glad I didn't join the band because we're all better for it now. I had seen Jack sit in with a couple people. Um, my buddy Steve Shaw and I just... Thought he was great, so whenever we heard he was sitting in, we'd go check him out. That's Dave Buick again, founder of Italy Records, who we heard from in the last episode, and who happened to be around for the first two full performances of the White Stripes, which really struck a chord. I was one of the few people that really, like, were instantly blown. I mean, and I say one of the few people because there just wasn't all that many people in attendance for the opening acts at those shows. From that point on, I... I was sold on the White Stripes. But for Dave, as with many others, it wasn't just a wild performance or some catchy songs. It was the whole package. Jack had a clear vision of where he wanted the White Stripes to go. And just by watching the shows, you could, you, you know, you could see that vision and you could feel that vision. It was just a, a drive that you could feel. Dave was so smitten that he became determined to put out a White Stripes single. Even though his initial pitch didn't go quite as planned in early 1998. Yeah, so he kind of, yeah, I went up to him. It was at the Magic Stick, and I told him that I'm like, hey, I just put out a record by Rocket 455 and one by the Dirties, and I'd love to do a White Stripe single. And he, yeah, he was like, I don't have any money, man. And he kind of was quick and took off. I don't have any money, man. That might sound like a strange reaction initially, since the point of a label is usually to front the money for a record. But keep in mind everything we talked about last episode. Things in Detroit at this point were so far removed from any kind of music industry stuff and, and so uninformed by traditional success metrics that, uh, hey, it, it makes total sense when a young musician doesn't understand how an indie label might operate. And don't forget, this was before the Detroit Cobras put out their first LP on Sympathy for the Record Industry, so there wasn't even that bright, shiny example to follow yet. Thankfully for Dave, though, and for the band, well, and for us, he was able to clear up that misunderstanding. You know, next time I saw him, I explained it. And he's like, oh, okay, cool. And then, like, 
you know, we pretty much hung out, you know, nonstop for the next two years. And that resulted in two Italy record singles, which would end up being integral to the White Stripe success. And Dave also ended up being a catalyst for another fruitful relationship over the years with Brendan Benson, who, as he talked about in the last episode, was convinced to move back home to Detroit after seeing the White Stripes play a show. I, I knew, I know Dave Buick. I've known him for, you know, for a long time. And so he was friends with him or he knew him. And I said, or I asked him, do you know this guy? Who is, you know, he said, yeah, his name's Jack. I said, well, introduce me. Cause I gotta, you know, I gotta talk to this guy. I gotta get to know this guy. So Dave did. And Jack came over to Brendan's place to hang out, which ended up being quite, quite the meat cute. And that was when he famously ashed on my, like a dresser I had. There was like, I was in a room, I was, we were standing in a room and I was showing him like all my stuff. You know, I was kind of showing off all my crap, my guitars and amps and shit. And he was like, yeah, cool, man. He was smoking a cigarette and he looked, looked around, you know, for an ashtray, I guess now, but he didn't find one. So he just kind of ashed on the table. <laughs> I was just like shocked, you know, and. I think he maybe wiped it off or something like it. he noticed my like <laughs> my horror and that's and that was Jack and then like and then the next thing I know he's going he's running across the street to what we called Thriller Market which was was a reference to the Michael Jackson video and you know all the zombies walking around because that's what this liquor store was like on the corner you didn't go in there for any reason you definitely didn't go in there to get food or pizza they sold pizza I guess <laughs> and so that's the other thing I remember about him. He ran across the street. He's like, dude, I'm hungry. I'm gonna, I'll be right back. So he ran across the street to get pizza. I'm like, wait, wait, we got, I got like, you know, we can make a sandwich here or something like that. But he wanted pizza. Now I think back and I think he was like, I was probably eating like sandwich with like lettuce on it. Because <laughs> at the time, I think he wasn't very health conscious, you know. And I remember, because Blackwell too, like uh, Blackwell's first tomato, I think he had a, his first tomato at my house or something like that. Like, I'm serious, man. It was nuts. He was like a half-grown man. I was like, what? Really? Yes, really. Uh, according to Blackwell, it was a tomato with mozzarella on top, and he was 17. For what it's worth, Brendan also gave him the first fresh blueberries and cream he'd ever had. It was, quote, uh, unlike any dish that was served to me in childhood. Those guys, uh, yeah, they had, like, terrible diets. I was... Thought the Garage Rockers. <laughs> in addition to introducing Blackwell to the other half of the food pyramid, Brendan tried introducing the White Stripes music to the masses. Tried being the operative word. Uh, Brendan still had a deal with the major label Virgin Records at this point, so he passed along some demos to his A&R guy. At the time, he just said to me, yeah, I don't get it. It's, it's not my thing, you know? And I was like, oh man, you're, you're going to be so, you're going to be kicking yourself, you know? I guarantee you, this is, this shit's so cool. You know, get past the get past the sound of it, maybe, I think. Because, you know, that was maybe a hard thing for major labels to to hear is, you know, where, where the power was coming from. It wasn't like a, didn't, it didn't have like your typical distorted heavy metal guitars or, you know, or it wasn't punk. It wasn't, you know, it was like, and it sounded kind of lo-fi and, but yeah, I don't, I, or else he just didn't get the music, I guess. I don't know. For Brendan, though, it, it was easy to see past the production and the presentation. For him, it, it was all about the songs and the performance. You know, from that very first moment he saw the band during that show in 98 that convinced him to move home. 
No, I hardly noticed that shit, actually. I mean, I hardly noticed like the red and white because I was, I was just so dialed in to the music, to the songs. I mean, I don't know. I, it was explosive. You know, he was explosive. He was mesmerizing. He was, he, 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 he commanded your attention. You know, he had this way. He was willing. I mean, he was, he was like falling to his knees during guitar solos and like just, it was exciting. It was like, no one, I don't know. I believed it too. You know, I totally believed it. It was just like, fuck, this guy's insane. He's possessed. You know, he's, he's like this guitar. He's like playing this guitar solo is like going to kill him or something. It's, it's great. that's all we've got for this episode of striped the story of the white stripes next time though you'll find out exactly how those italy record singles factored into the white stripes success and you'll finally find out what steve shaw told long gone john of sympathy for the record industry i want to say a special thanks to ben blackwell ben swank and the rest of the third man crew we get production assistance from mark charles kojin tashiro and melissa locker And additional scoring in this episode is by Lone Wolf Gang. You know, the biggest thanks of all, though, goes to Jack and Meg White, the White Stripes, because without them, none of this would be possible. I'm your host and producer, Sean Cannon. I'll see you next time. We'd always be hanging at Dave Buick's usually. We'd kind of, everyone would kind of convene there. And Jack's a really funny guy, like ultra funny, like has like giftedly funny. And I remember the kind of rivalry between Jack and Dave, because Dave's also really funny. <laughs> so you had the kind of this, and and then enter Greg Simez, who's additionally funny as hell. And you just had these, Jokers, comedians, wannabe comedians, pretty much, just cracking us up. It was great. It's good times. Too bad he's dead. It's really sad. <laughs> I feel like he's. I feel like we're talking about it like it's. You know what I mean? Like he's dead. <laughs> <laughs>